You're listening to Constant Wonder. I'm Tenery Taylor. We're going to meet some of the soldiers who, against all odds, ferried Washington across the Delaware. They were a group of sailors and fishermen from Marblehead, Massachusetts. And throughout the Revolutionary War, they just kept showing up at the right time. But unlike that famous river crossing, some of their achievements have been lost to the history books. Here to tell their story is Patrick K. O'Donnell. He's the author of The Indispensables, the diverse soldier mariners who shaped the country, formed the Navy, and rode Washington across the Delaware. Welcome to Constant Wonder, Patrick. Oh, thanks for having me on today. Now, you're, as your title indicates, this regiment was unusually diverse. Will you tell us about that and tell us why? It's one of the first uh, diverse regiments in the United States Army and one of the most diverse. And it was diverse racially um, in the sense that it had free African-Americans as well as Native Americans, a few Hispanic members of the regiment. And it was diverse socioeconomically. It was rich and poor, uh, fighting side by side uh, throughout the American Revolution. And as you indicated, they were in some of the great inflection points of the Revolution War and literally saved our country multiple times. Uh, where all would have been lost had it not been for the efforts of the Marblehead men. Well, how did, that, how did this diverse group come to be there in Massachusetts? Why there? Um, Marblehead is about 16 miles north of Boston as the crow flies. And in 1770, the 1770s, it was a very cosmopolitan port city. And um, it, had an, uh, it was racially diverse for a variety of reasons, including the fact that the men um, were actively uh, trading around the globe, which brought different people to the town. Um, but it was also progressive for its time, and many of the men were uh, were fishermen, and they fished what was known as the Grand Banks. These are the most some of the most treacherous waters in the world. Mm-hmm. They still are. Mm-hmm. And uh, to, taking a fishing boat to this area, which is about fifteen hundred miles away from there, from Marblehead, they then would fish, and they would have to deal with massive waves and storms. Every year, scores of men would die at sea, and it, it created a very hard, hardened men. Um, but it also, it created a situation where there was amazing teamwork that had to be achieved in order to survive the Grand Banks. And it didn't really matter your skin tone. It mattered whether or not you could perform the job, and people worked as a team together. And ha- split-second decisions had to be made instantly. And there was also a lot of leadership that, that would be spawned from fishing. And it was their skill at sea that would prove indispensable to the young United States. Mm. And I want to get to that. But before we do, there's an incident on land that really affected the community, which I want to talk about because it has repercussions throughout some of these men's lives. Uh, Marblehead was hit with a smallpox epidemic. And can you tell us, first of all, how it came to be in Marblehead? This is really an interesting story because it relates to current events. Uh, The town was hit by a virus. And the virus was brought to Marblehead by the fishermen who were trading with some French sailors in the Grand Banks. And they brought it home. And the virus quickly spread through the town. And they came up with all kinds of ways to, to try to combat it. Uh, first, it was they created pest houses to quarantine the virus. Uh, they even were killing dogs, anything that, was, that could transmit the virus. It didn't work. And they came up with a very novel way to, to, to deal with it for the time. They decided to um, inoculate people with the virus uh, and created a vaccinate or inoculation hospital inside the town. And, you know, this is what's interesting about this is the virus itself divided the town politically and the virus was used for political means as well. Um, the, the idea of the hospital was, was cutting edge for its time. It was science, but it was like Russian roulette. Uh, you could either die from the um, inoculation or you'd be cured. Mm. Most of the time, people were, were cured by it. And the hospital cost 2,000 pounds. And it was the patriots that, in the town that 
um, you know, forwarded the plan and funded the money. The loyalists in the town, I mean, this is something that most people don't realize. The American Civil War was, or I mean, the American Revolution was also a civil war. And um, the, it was divided, we were very, very deeply divided during the American Revolution between people that stayed with the crown and those that to join the patriot cause. And people shifted between both sides constantly. Hmm. Um, and politically, what was going on is the virus. The Patriots were gaining strength and political power, um, but the Loyalists didn't like what was going on, and they organized a mob of about a dozen people to burn the hospital to the ground, and that's exactly what they did. They burned it to the ground with people inside, and it's a miracle that nobody mm -hmm. was killed. What happened next is the proprietors now, of the do hospital— you think, I want to stop you right there because I want to know what they were thinking or what at least they said they were thinking. Were they saying that this is actually a dangerous practice and we want to stop it? Or were they afraid of the patriots kind of achieving this success in this arena and therefore gaining more converts to their cause? I think it was a lot of—it was a variety of things. Uh, I think that the, the loyalists stoked the fears of the population— because there was a danger to some degree of this unknown science, even though it would it, it proved to be absolutely essential to winning the Revolutionary War. And I'll get to that yeah, later. Yeah, we'll get to that later, yeah. But it's it, it was the it was used as a wedge and it was used to divide people and it was there was violence, a lot of political violence that was stoked by the loyalists. And they um individuals burned the hospital to the ground and then you know the proprietors went to the local sheriff and said look you know arrest these people we know who they are and they did exactly that and then the loyalist organized a massive mob and over a thousand people participated and they stormed the jail with axes and crowbars broke through the doors and they freed the men and what happened next is really extraordinary uh, scene, really. Uh, in, in there's the local papers of the time paint some very vivid scenes of what occurred. The homes of the patriots were surrounded and their lives were threatened. And uh, the main character of the book is it was was was. Uh, was Elbridge was so one of them was Elbridge Gary. His house was surrounded, and this had a, a profound and shaking effect on him. And he would 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 uh, exit politics briefly. Um, my other main character, John Glover, Colonel John Glover, right. later General John Glover, decided to that he wasn't going to die, and he wanted to defend himself. And he brought a, a loaded cannon into the foyer of his home. <laughs> And when the, the mob showed up, he ordered the, the doors thrust open, and he was there with a lighted torch and told them to disperse. Mm -hmm. And it was a show of force. It sort of demonstrates the, the resilience of this character, mm -hmm. this individual, and his strength and uh, leadership. And he, the mob dispersed. And besides just his personal safety, Glover had been invested in this hospital, right? So he was really... Um, a key player in the whole inoculation effort. He was. And 2,000 pounds prior to the American Revolution is, yeah, I mean, I, I can't even count. It's, it's, it's practically, it's an enormous fortune that um, these men lost to, to try to save the town. And it caused, this caused a lot of um, ill feelings. It also demonstrated how the mob was fickle and it could go either patriot or loyalist it could be controlled um and but it's in this sort of cauldron that these founders develop um much of the american principles of liberty and freedom that we know today especially albert gary he's a leading member of, our, of the founders that nobody uh, few have heard of sure. um in terms of his story um he's no unfortunately known for gerrymandering, um, but his it, it's sort of a, something he, he was unfortunately the governor at the time. It wasn't something that he necessarily proposed. His idea of, of liberty and freedom would be imbued in our revolutionary principles, and he would play an important role in the American Revolution, in the Bill of Rights later on, and just um, the idea of virtue 
and something called republicanism which is with a small r it's kind of putting your country above yourself mm -hmm. and he took these abstract concepts and really lived them mm -hmm. and he was a signer of the declaration of independence but he's a major um a thought leader if you will um in the american revolution and he's coming from marblehead along with other men and they're very critical in the early revolutionary war movement uh, not only in their ideas, but also something very important too, gunpowder. And uh, the Americans have guns, but they don't have any gunpowder. And as the the zeitgeist of, of revolution um, in the country, the mood of the country is one of revolutionary spirit, of John Locke and freedom and liberty, um, it, it spills over in 1774 uh, when General Gage tries to tamp down this revolutionary ardor by, by basically confiscating all the known powder that he can find. And there's a place called the Somerville Powder Magazine, and they, steal, they take the powder, and it causes a massive firestorm. People know that if they don't, aren't able to defend themselves, uh, they'll, they'll be just like any other... Uh, movement within the British Empire, they'd be crushed, and their lives would be uh, endangered. They might be killed, um, and this is what really is going on here. Uh, for for many many years, their lives were interfered with by the the central government in London and the Crown. Uh, they were they were constantly harassed by the crown their their ships were being boarded they were being impressed there was undue regulations their judges were being installed that were from the crown that weren't local officials i mean it goes on and on and a number of events um that that occur for instance the boston massacre where these men are in sort of the heart of that the um the boston tea party which they're also a heart of it sets in motion a series of things that the British do to, to try to crush the rebellion in any means that they can. They throw everybody out of work, for instance, in Boston. Uh, they, they, they basically tell the Marbleheaders that they can't fish the Grand Banks with something called the Fisher, Fisheries Act. It, it throws everybody. Mm -hmm. They know that their, their livelihood is going to be gone. Um, and then the powder comes, and they try to steal. They take the powder, and it's going on around the, the, the eastern seaboard. And uh, the Marbleheaders play a key role because they have uh, relationships with Spain and also the West Indies, and they are they can they bring in the majority of the powder in 1774 before the revolution begins. They also use their maritime skills to steal some powder. I I wonder if you could tell us the story of Captain John Manley and the um, the British brig the Nancy. I love this story. This is a great story. Um, powder, the lack of powder, it drives all kinds of innovation, and the uh, Washington is at the heart of it. Uh, he realizes his army has hardly any power. They might not even be powder. They might not even be able to defend themselves against a British attack. Had the British attacked out out of Boston, but he sees the British Navy um, transporting. You know, they have to transport everything from London, which is over 3,000 miles away, to supply General Gage. And there's these these powder ships and transport ships that are supplying Gage. And Washington comes up with the plan, first of maybe raiding Halifax, which is a powder magazine, and, you know, getting up there and then stealing the powder and bringing it back. But he's got a problem. He doesn't have a ship <laughs> or a navy. And he turns to John Glover. Um, because they develop a rather intimate relationship um, because Glover, Glover's men are the first to guard Washington when he arrives in Cambridge after the Battle of Bunker Hill. And they develop a, a trust that will last the entire uh, American Revolution, Larry War, and deep friendship. And it's Washington that turns to Glover to come up with a solution and that's where Washington's Navy is born. And Washington's Navy has some pretty humble origins. It begins as John Glover's fishing boat, mm. the Hannah. Mm -hmm. And this little rotting tub 
that consists that will you know is a fishing boat that they have to repurpose and they arm with four four pound guns uh then is going to take on these powder ships and somehow try to hijack them basically or uh you know it's kind of a a situation of of piracy in a way you can look at it that way it's they're going out mm -hmm. to see to 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 take out these powder ships they're not necessarily trying to engage the royal navy uh on a one on a head-on fight against some of their greatest warships they have you know warships that have over 50 guns or more it's like a battleship in today's uh you know navy um and they're not doing that they're just trying to go after these vulnerable powder ships and they're extremely successful and john manley is one of the most successful captains he um he seizes a powder sh a, a ship that is loaded with ordnance and even a massive uh, mortar that um, it, it all comes at exactly the right time. Washington, his army is starving for powder and ordnance, and they capture the ship. It's one of the greatest prizes of the war. And how do they capture it? I mean, how do, how do they even get close to it? You'd think they'd be on the lookout do. for riffraff. <laughs> Well, the thing is that they're very clever. Uh, the The Americans are very clever at this time. They they employ a number of uh, subterfuges and ruses. They'll fly the, the British flag, and they'll come right up to the ship and mm. and act like they're trying to pilot it up to to Boston because they you know the the waters around the area require you know, navigation and, and the, the ships that are being sailed are civilian ships to supply the British Navy. And, you know, through ruses and, and even just outright boarding parties, all kinds of, you know, the, the book really gives you this fla flavor of uh, naval combat, you know, either ship to ship or boarding ships. And there's really some exciting stories of, of that type of combat. Uh, and then they, they seize the ship. And this is just one of many. And, it has an incredible effect on the American Revolutionary War. What happens is uh, they seize some of the most valuable prizes that are worth 50,000 pounds or more, but they also force <laughs> these civilian ships. The, sh the, the insurance rates go sky high. Mm -hmm. So the crown is bleeding money mm -hmm. and they're losing ships left and right to these small, um, very quick cruisers that are banned by Glover's men. And this is the origins of the American or the U.S. Navy. And it's here that we develop everything and how to, you know, sail in, 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 in um, kind of a wolf pack formation, if you will. There's the first naval flag. This is about sovereignty, too, because it's a huge step. It's still 1775. We don't have an independent country, but we have a Navy, which is a major step towards independence because you have to fund it. It's it's something that a state has, an independent state, which sure. is not something that, uh, you know, you're just, these are not just people that are just, um, uh, just members of the crown. I mean, they're going towards being citizens and, you know. If you're just joining us, this is Constant Wonder. I'm Tenery Taylor, and our guest is Patrick K. O'Donnell. He's the author of The Indispensables, The Diverse Soldier Mariners Who Shaped the Country, Formed the Navy, and Rode Washington Across the Delaware. Um, we're going to talk a lot about their skills on the water, but I was really impressed by one um, defensive maneuver they employed in a, in a land battle. And this happened near Pell's Point on Long Island Sound. Kind of this ingenious um, defense system using local stone walls. Will you tell us about this skirmish? This is a really, this is one of the forgotten skirmishes of, it's a, really a battle of the American Revolutionary War. And it first begins at a place called Throng's Neck. And what we're talking about is, the time frame is, is October 1776. And the Americans had just lost the Battle of Brooklyn, which was a, a disastrous defeat. Uh, it was the Marbleheaders that saved Washington's army there by rowing them across the East River in what I call an American Dunkirk. 9,500 Americans were saved, including Washington himself, on the backs of the Marbleheaders as they Well, we, they should, talk, a, we should talk about this one um, before then we get to, to the stone walls, because this is really important. Um, what they were able to do. And can you kind of talk about why it had to be so secret and the role that Mother Nature played in, in this? 
Yeah, absolutely. This is um, this is a situation in the American Revolution. It's the time frame is August 1776, and the Battle of Brooklyn begins on the 27th, the night of the 27th, and it's uh, it's a they're basically the Americans are out on a uh, sort of a, a, a rocky peninsula and they're surrounded and uh, the British flank them and they're about to destroy the American army and uh, a series of charges by Washington's immortals. I wrote a book called Washington's immortals or the Maryland 400 save the, the army. For, for, they, they basically buy in an hour more precious in our history than any other. They allow the army to escape to a series of entrenchments at Brooklyn Heights. And uh, what happens next is the, the, the British army could have destroyed us had they attacked. Um, but Lord Howe decides to wait, and he decides on a, a more conservative plan of of digging a series of, of entrenchments himself and siege lines. And it's here that Washington decides that he's got to come up with a plan. He's going to either defend that area or he's going to have to escape. And a river escape uh, against a, a hostile army, uh, you know, with the Royal Navy even at your back too. Sure, sitting is ducks. exceptionally, <laughs> exceptionally the most difficult military maneuver you can pull off. Mm-hmm. And, but he decides to do it. And with hardly any notice, uh, his his evacuation plan rests upon the so- shoulders of John Glover, and they have a motley assortment of small boats that they have to immediately crew and get the uh, the Continental Army back across the East River. And uh, at first, this is the the night of August 29th. They're told that they're going to attack. But instead of attacking the British entrenchments, they pull back towards the East River. And this is exactly the same spot uh, as the what we now have as the Brooklyn Bridge. There was why no did, bridge wait, there, wait, obviously. Why are they told one thing, and then they're, but the point was to actually it do was another? It was all part of a ruse, because they, they knew that if anybody had, a, had left the Continental Army to inform the British, the entire plan would have evaporated. Uh, because the British would have attacked, had they known that the Americans were retreating. Uh, so instead they say to them that they're attacking and they're attacking in a different direction though, <laughs> but they're actually about to board the boats that are manned by Glover. But what also happens is the loyalists in the town try to tip off the British. And there's a story in there about how uh, that occurs, but miraculously the information doesn't get up to the, ch- the chain of command like it should. Uh, but just one of a series of events that's really miraculous that saves the army that night. Uh, but the, uh, the the plan fails initially. They they can't cross the East River because the currents are not going well. Uh, and Marbleheaders are straining with all their strength. They're using pads, uh, cloth on the oars to, to muffle the noise because mm-hmm. they know if the British are alerted, they're going to attack. Um, and they're trying in vain to cross. It's not really working. They decide to try to call off the the um, American Dunkirk, but they can't find Washington. <laughs> so it goes forward. And, and miraculously, the wind changes so that the sails that these men have in their boats are able to, they're able to cross and they're able to move some, um, you know, men across. And they have to do it uh, nearly a dozen times back and forth, six times back and forth with the heavy equipment, the cannon, and everything else. But it's not, there's not enough time. And dawn is coming. And this is really one of the great, um, you know, I think it's a miracle. Uh, it, it, they, they claimed it was providential. Um, a fog sets in at exactly the right time mm. to, to mm-hmm. screen the movement of the army from the prying eyes of the British as Glover's men are crossing. And also what happens is really quite amazing. The entire Royal Navy is on the East River, but they're not able to sail up. The river and blow the boats to smithereens because the wind doesn't favor them mm. and the evacuation goes off as planned mm. it's a miracle yeah okay it was a situation where had that failed the entire revolution probably would have ended right right so that's successful and then get us back to um back to we're on long island sound again uh, with the stone walls, because I really, I yeah, love this thing. Th- I think it just shows thinking on your feet. That's what I like about this story. It's it's a great story. Uh, what happens first 
is the British uh, are trying to, they have this enormous advantage. They have the ability of the, the Royal Navy, the most powerful Navy in the world at the time. They can, they can attack anywhere in New York or Manhattan because it's surrounded practically by water. And that's what they do. They try to flank the, the Americans and they land first at a place called Throng's Neck. And here it's a really incredible story of how basically 50 men that are expert riflemen hold off the entire British army as it lands <laughs> because they're killing the officers and anybody that steps out of a boat. And, you know, Lord Howe realizes after Bunker Hill, he doesn't want to lose his precious troops. So they decide to evacuate. They pull out, which is one of these things. It's really kind of a rare thing in, 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 in world history is to repel an amphibious invasion by the most powerful Navy of the world at the time. But the Americans do it. Uh, and it's Glover's men that are also present here. But uh, their real success uh, is at Pell's Point, as you sort of alluded to. The Royal Navy, like, sails up the river, and several days later, they land at Pell's Point. And um, they're hoping to flank the Americans again and cut off Washington. And it's Glover's men, his brigade in particular, that really plays the vital role in, in, in a delaying action. That, that slows the British down and allows Washington to escape. And what they do here is they're, they use the terrain to their advantage. They're, 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 they're hiding behind, they're using the stone walls as cover, and they're firing um, at some of the Crown's most elite troops, the light infantry, as well as Hessian, Hessian troops that are you know, highly trained, and they're stopping the attacks. They're killing many, many men. Uh, but as they're about to be overwhelmed, they fall back behind another stone wall. And this is what's known as a collapsible defense. It's not, this is like cutting edge stuff uh, in the 18th century, believe it or not. And uh, it's part of an emerging American way of war that we still know today. Um, because of, these of innovation. stone walls, these stone walls are just what farmers used to like mark their property, right? Or to line the roads, right? So they're everywhere. Exactly. And the British need to use the roads to get through. And so they become, you know, it's kind of a shooting gallery. I Indeed. Would think. And this this goes on for hours. And uh, they they stop the British army. And they they allow Washington's army to escape. But it's the it's the Battle of Pell's Point, which is kind of a very much a forgotten uh, aspect of the American Revolution. And, and today, it's, there's not much, uh, there's, there's some of those stone walls still exist, and they're part of a golf course that is part of the Pell's Point, uh, in the Pell's Point area. And you can kind of visit this, as well as a, um, there's another massive boulder not far from where the British actually landed. And uh, the local militia, it's thought, uh, actually were the first to engage the British as they landed near that boulder. And, and then Glover's troops then uh, then joined the fight. Mm -hmm. And they play this incredibly crucial role in saving the army there in a forgotten battle. Patrick K. O'Donnell is the author of The Indispensables, The Diverse Soldier Mariners Who Shaped the Country, Formed the Navy, and Rode Washington Across the Delaware. Coming up, we're going to hear the story about the Marblehead Regiment's success in getting Washington across that river when other army contingents failed. Stay with us. Welcome back to Constant Wonder. I'm Tenery Taylor. Our guest is Patrick K. O'Donnell, author of The Indispensables, The Diverse Soldier Mariners Who Shaped the Country, Formed the Navy, and Rode Washington Across the Delaware. All right, so we've been setting up and getting ready for this story. We know the story. We think we know the story of getting Washington across the Delaware. But I want to talk about why this group from Marblehead, you think, um, succeeded where others failed because there were other boats that tried to get across the Delaware that night, and they did not succeed. And and they totally surprised the Hessians in Trenton. Um, why why were the so I'm, I'm asking you two questions. Why did they succeed where others failed? And why were the Hessians not expecting anybody to come across from Pennsylvania? Another series of, of remarkable small events and incidents changed the course of history. But it's really, it, it boils down to skill and leadership and teamwork once again. 
that saves the United States. And it's done on the shoulders of a diverse regiment. Uh, their training, uh, their, it, it comes from before the war and, and the fishing of the Grand Banks and as, as well as trading around the world uh, and various merchant ships. But they are now tasked with crossing the Delaware River. And Washington doesn't just have one attack across the Delaware. He has multiple attacks. And what I think the listeners need to understand is that all of the other attacks failed uh, for the army to cross the Delaware because it was raging that that night, at Christmas or that, at Christmas night. It just it was raging. The currents were horrendous. Uh, and nobody for those could get of us who, who are maybe on the West Coast or haven't been to the Delaware, just, just describe the river itself. How big it is. It's it's fairly uh, wide. It's uh, I'd say I, I can't give you the exact dimensions, but it it's it's a fairly wide river, um, but. This is Christmas 1776, and it's raging. Uh, the The waters are the current is is high. Uh, there's ice chunks. Nothing's working. Nobody can get across. Um, and then everything kind of again falls on the shoulders of the Marbleheaders. There's a, a nor'easter that is also occurring. There's a massive storm. Uh, sleet and snow, rain, freezing rain, are all pelting the boats as they're trying to cross. And uh, the other attempts all fail. Um, and uh, what, what happens next is a series of interesting coincidences uh, occur. Johann Rahl, who's the Hessian commander, is informed that there's going to be attack by British intelligence. He just doesn't know exactly where. But an unauthorized raid by Adam Stevens and his men, about 200 Virginians, attack earlier in the day. <laughs> and... Washington is dumbfounded when he sees Stevens' men in front of him as they're trudging towards Trenton. Mm. And he's like, you've just destroyed my entire plan. But what happens is quite interesting. Uh, Rawl, we suspect, thought that that was the raid. And he, his men actually repelled Adam Stevens. Mm. And uh, there's also this massive nor'easter, and nobody would attack in the middle of a nor'easter, right? But the nor'easter screens the movement of the army. And uh, it's John Glover's men in the marbles that are going along the river road. And they seize the key bridge, the Aston Peak Creek Bridge, without orders. But they realize it's important. And they, they seize the bridge. And they also set up their guns on the high ground on the other side, uh, uh, above the bridge and uh, near it. And they pelt Rawls' men. And they force a double envelopment, which is exceptionally rare during the American Revolutionary War, where the entire, nearly the entire regiment of the Hessian regiment is captured or killed. And it sets up this decisive victory. Um, had the bridge not been taken, they would have been able to retreat. And the combined Hessian forces might have even been able to defeat Washington's army. We don't know. Mm. But it, it sets up the, a, a series of 10 crucial days that change the course of history. And the Marbleheaders, um, it's quite interesting. Uh, the enlistments are about to expire uh, on the 1st of January. And Washington knows he's got a problem. He's got to find men to continue the attack. And... Uh, Half the men in the Marblehead Regiment go home because their their wives are, are gravely ill. Wash, uh, Glover's wife is uh, on her deathbed. She later dies. Uh, many of the men, is the, the town is completely impoverished. But half the regiments volunteers to stay on, or more less than half stay on, including a very crucial member, uh, Dr. Nathaniel Bond, mm. who's... In, who was part of the inoculation hospital that I talked about earlier in Marblehead in 1773 and 74. Right. So let's talk about this because this is a kind of um, warfare that um, probably also saved the army. And it was still, as we saw back in Marblehead, um, smallpox inoculation could be controversial and people didn't were afraid of it. A lot of people were afraid of it. Yeah, but the army was dying more from the virus than from British bullets. And, hmm. and and uh, and cannonballs. It was uh, the army had an infection rate of approach twenty percent, and it was it was climbing. And Washington knew that if the army wasn't inoculated, they would never be able to fight the British. It would just melt away. People would just die from the virus. 
So he came up with a controversial plan to inoculate the entire Continental Army, um, which inoculation is dangerous, like I mentioned. It's, it's taking a small knife or a knife and then lancing a, a top of the shoulder and inserting a small portion of the virus into the body to create, um, you know, basically the limit resistance antibodies. Uh, and it, it usually works. In some cases it doesn't though. And people get a full blown case of smallpox and they could die. And that occurred. Uh, but Washington decides to do it. And the most seasoned and experienced smallpox expert is Dr. Nathaniel Bond. And Dr. Bond's story is incredible. It's never been told until the indispensables. And I found his, his name on the muster roll and I decided to, to dig into it. And Dr. Bond is not only the inoculation hospital expert, but at the beginning of the war at Lexington and Concord, he saves British soldiers. But what happens is he's canceled by the Patriots because they think he's a loyalist mistakenly hmm. for treating the British. And his house is surrounded. I have a, oh. a four-page letter that's extraordinary that he, he pleads with Elbridge Gary to, to send an armed guard so that he can go under court-martial and explain what happened. And she does. And instead of, you know, his honor was besmirched. Instead of, you know, walking away from the revolution, he goes even further into it and he becomes a fighting surgeon and a company commander. And he's, he fights at Pell's Point. He's at the Battle of Long Island. He's everywhere. And he stays on. And he heeds Washington's call to volunteer to stay on where others go back. And it's Dr. Bond that sets up all the inoculation hospitals. And he even inoculates the army and he saves it. Um, it's, it's arguably one of Washington's greatest st strategic decisions mm. to uh, inoculate the army so that it can fight on. And Do as we know a result, how long it's quite... it took to, to turn things around, to get everybody inoculated and the time took... against the virus? It turns. It takes months, but it takes. It's it's the entire Revolutionary War that they're still battling the the, the virus. They have to inoculate all the new recruits that come in. It's a constant uh, effort. But Bond inoculates the intact Continental Army of 1777, and he sets up all the hospitals. He even does a lot of the inoculations. But it, tragically, he dies as a result of his service to our country. Of of and he dies in obscure we suspect of smallpox mm. but uh he dies and uh, in his service and uh he's an obscure figure that until the indispensables um you know he, he was forgotten which is very sad mm. well patrick o'donnell patrick k o'donnell it's um there's so many more stories and so many more um tales of heroism that have been forgotten to history in your book, uh, The Indispensables. And I really appreciate you taking some time to share some of them with us today. It was really a pleasure to come on the show. Patrick K. O'Donnell is the author of The Indispensables, the diverse soldier mariners who shaped the country, formed the Navy, and rode Washington across the Delaware. This is Constant Wonder. I'm Tenery Taylor. And I'm Marcus Smith. Now, I think it's fair to say you don't necessarily have to look like a fierce warrior to be indispensable. Uh, up next, we're going to meet an unlikely revolutionary war hero, a somewhat rotund Boston bookseller by the name of Henry Knox, who rose to fame running a crucial, indispensable errand for George Washington. We'll be back with a story of Knox after this on Constant Wonder. This is Constant Wonder. I'm Marcus Smith. Probably still good advice after all these years. If you want to be indispensable, just find something that must be done and be the one who does it. That, in short, is the story of Henry Knox. He was a humble bookseller in Boston, but he gets credit for winning the first major battle of the American Revolution, later became Washington's right-hand man for many years. He was a self-taught ammunitions specialist and eventually became this country's first secretary of war. Before all of that, he rose to fame by running an indispensable errand for Washington. I had a chance to speak about it with William Hazelgrove. He's author of Henry Knox's Noble Train, the story of a Boston bookseller's heroic expedition that saved the American Revolution. Yeah, you know, that, that was really what intrigued me when I first heard this story, uh, that and what he actually did, but also the fact that he was this 
you know, 18th century bookseller who had his own bookstore, who, who acquired it at a very early age, and he was actually a very good bookseller. He was the first guy to use blurbs, uh, which nobody had done before, which is standard in the industry now. He actually would price his books lower than everybody else, because at that time, the, the sort of patrician classes felt like reading was just for the rich people. And he said, no, no, you know, poor people should be able to get my books as well. So, you know, he's a very self-taught, literate guy. And, yeah, he just, you know, that's sort of how I started to connect with him, especially when I was writing the first scenes of the book, was envisioning this Boston bookseller uh, closing up his shop at night. You know, and it became, also his bookstore became sort of a literary salon for the British and the Americans, which also made it a real neat melting pot as his character was being formed by the events swirling around him. And it really is his background, too. His father left at a very early age. So he became the breadwinner at like 10 years old, supporting his brother and his mother. And he actually went to work for two other booksellers who said to him, you know what, read anything you want. Uh, And so he was very self-educated. Of course, a lot of people were at that time. And, and he took them at the word. And really, you know, as he developed, as he grew, he kept reading and reading. And then, of course, then when he got his own bookstore, he had a very much of a people's view of, of books and literature. And the fact that, you know, he was coming from very humble, hard scrabble beginnings. Uh, and this, too, made him, as you said, very egalitarian. Now, Henry Knox is the Fort Knox guy. I haven't gotten that wrong. Where all that gold is stashed, right? Exactly. And as you say, that's what people know him for. It's, it's really funny that that's what's come down through history, when in fact, you know, his taking of this canon, which I know we're going to talk about in a second, in 1775 is really what he should be known for, because this was the amazing part of his life. You know, it's, it's funny, when I studied the Wright brothers and Teddy Roosevelt, um, just to name a few, you really start to believe that people are meant to do this one thing. You know, they're, they're, they're sort of on this earth to do this one thing, and then they fulfill that, and everything else is sort of like a gentle rain after that. You know, But this one thing that they're meant to do that's incredible, it, it, it feels to me like that's why they were put here. Yeah, and this is exactly the point that I wanted to make with you, which is that everybody knows this guy because of the name Fort Knox. And he really is one of those names in history that what he really did was phenomenal, but almost forgotten. Is that, is that too much to say it's forgotten? Oh, most people just don't even know it. Um, you know, I found out about it reading David McCullough's great book, 1776. And uh, I'm reading along, and he, he covered Knox in maybe three or four pages on getting the canons in 1775. And then he moved on. But that really stuck with me, and I thought, wow, what an interesting story. So when I started to research, all I could find was kids' books. There's a few kids' books on, on this, you know, this taking of the canon in 1775 and nothing else. So, you know, 99.9% of the people do not know, uh, you know, Henry Knox did this, if they know Henry Knox at all. But I can't tell you how many times when I've given talks and, and things like that, people said, I had no idea. You know, this guy did this. Yeah. Well, if he's a bookseller, why is he going off to Fort Ticonderoga to procure cannons for General Washington? This just doesn't make much sense. It doesn't make sense right. at all. That's not his line of work. Right. So, okay, so he, you know, he actually popped up at the Boston Massacre, um, you know, and he had been coming sort of radicalized at the time. John Adams, a lot of people stopped at his bookstore. So after the Boston Massacre, he feels like, We've got to split with England. This is the only only thing we can do. So he and his wife, Lucy, sneak out of Boston one night, take a boat out. He goes and joins the Army, hooks up with George Washington in the most serendipitous moment of the war, which is, you know, he's sort of walking down a road, and he just finished building these fortifications. So here comes Washington galloping up. Washington takes up with him. Let's talk about Henry Knox, who he is. He's a big guy for his time, maybe six foot, and he's physically large. You, know, you might call him overweight today, and, but he's very gregarious. He also is sort of flamboyant. He had a hunting accident, so he has a handkerchief wrapped around his left hand. Um, Washington's taken with him, and this is, sort of goes with George Washington, who loved um, to take on young officers who had a sort of can-do spirit. So that's Henry Knox. 
So when he gets hold of Knox, you know, there is 60 tons of cannons up, up in Fort Ticonderoga, 120,000 pounds. And, of course, the Americans are now surrounding Boston, but they can't get the British out. And without artillery, they can't do a thing. So Washington knows that, you know, these cannons are there, and he lets Henry Knox know and says, you know, I, I could see you heading up the artillery. And Knox says, well, where's the artillery? He says, well, we don't have any. But up at Fort Ticonderoga, there's 60 tons. Well, this is 300 miles, dead of winter, almost impossible. Of course, Henry Knox says, I'll go get them. Well, you gotta, go. you got to tell us why Knox was kind of whooped on the idea of having anything to do with artillery. He'd been reading about this as a kid, apparently. Yeah, he was, you know, Henry Knox was the type of guy who would read about something and then go try it. And he had trained a little bit with a, a local train of artillery after he would close the bookstore. But you're right there. He was fascinated with anything military. You know, at this time, the military was sort of the rock star event. I mean, if you wanted to become famous, if you wanted to get, uh, you know, be successful, you went to the military. That was sort of your way to it. And so Henry Knox, like a lot of young men of his time, you know, wanted to join the army. He wanted to get involved with the revolution. And his thing was he was fascinated with the artillery. So, again, he had read about it, but he had never actually done anything hands-on. And this is what's so amazing about the revolution. Washington had all these men, young officers, who had virtually no experience. And really, again, Washington would pick people to say, you know, I think you have great talent. And I'm going to bring that out in you. But, but in terms of experience, Knox had none, not a, not, not a bit in terms of, you know, really working with a lot of artillery, but certainly not going to get artillery. Well, it's one thing to fire, you know, big guns. It's another thing to transport them. And, and his task, I guess, at first wasn't at all with firing the artillery. He had to, he had to just move it. Yeah, okay, so to set it up, all right, here's Boston. 300 miles away, Fort Ticonderoga, after Ethan Allen and Benedict Arnold had taken the fort, there's 120,000 pounds, which for your listeners is to equal to 28 SUVs of artillery. Knox has to go from there, from Boston, up all the way across frozen lakes, rivers, and mountains, get the artillery, and haul it all the way back. Now, how's he going to do this? Well, he uses oxen and sleds, which sort of the heavy lifting equipment of the time. And, and he's going to have to literally drag it back. So, again, he sets out in winter of 1775, heads up there, uh, pretty uneventful heading up. But then he gets to Lake George. Now, the, the fort, Fort Ticonderoga, is between Lake Champlain and Lake George. And so then they go across Lake George. So far, so good, not too bad. They get there, you know, the people that... It, you know, Fort Ticonderoga think he's crazy. They're like, what are you doing here in winter? These outposts are like just these barren places in the middle of nowhere. And he tells them what he's doing. They actually help him get all the cannon down into a bunch of bateaus, which are these sort of like flat-bottom canoes. And, and he has to space them all because some of them weigh 5,000 pounds. Now he has to go back down Lake George. And this is where the whole thing starts to turn into hell because they hit a storm. Lake George is mostly frozen, except for a little bit of water open in the middle. And they have to literally pull their way down. And it is just, you know, incredibly hard. They aren't moving. They're nearly freezing to death. They stop on Sabbath Island. There's Indians. They think the Indians are going to attack them. Fortunately, they help them. But this is, you know, this is sort of the first part of this incredibly arduous journey that, that they're taking. That, that, by the way, Washington's War Council said, don't do it. Don't do it. This is ridiculous. It's not going to succeed. You're going to waste money. But Washington was like, no, I'm going to send this guy. He's going to do it. And Congress actually gave him some money to do it. So they finally get down across Lake George and get to Fort George. But Knox is, you know, through a bunch of machinations, doesn't have the, the sleds and the oxen, and he has to go through all these problems to get it. Finally, he gets those all lined up, and he's got about, you know, 90 oxen and 42 sleds is what it's coming down to. So he sort of divides them up into five groups, and now they're going to start heading down. Heading down, you know, and they have to cross, you know, the frozen Hudson four times now. And, and this, is, this 
Hudson is crazy because the Hudson is in various you know phases of thawing and freezing, and Henry Knox has no great idea how to get across. Now these Teamsters are helping him, which are basically the same kind of guys today. They move heavy equipment, and so what they way they would cross these rivers is basically they push these these um, sleds, these five thousand pound sleds, out with the oxen, and a Teamster would walk next to it with an axe ready to cut you know, the ropes if the sleds went through. So the, the, they cross the Hudson the first time. They get across amazingly. They cross the second time, and sure enough, the sled goes down into the water, right right down into the Hudson. They cut the ropes. You know, they don't pull the oxen down. But, but you know, anybody else would have said, well, leave the, leave the cannon there. Henry Knox says, no, no, we need them all. And, and he he retrieves it. He gets it pulled up from the bottom of, you know, the Hudson River, which, which is, you know, this amazing feat on its, into itself. And uh, so, so, you know, by the way, when he's up there, he writes a letter to George Washington. And, you know, to talk about where the name of the book and everything comes from, he went to, writes a letter to George Washington and says, I'm on the way with your noble train of artillery. So he sort of elevated to this holy mission. Knox was a man of God. Right? He was a very he he was he was as a lot of men were of that time, and and so he elevates this to this sort of holy mission that you know he and he, he believes the the revolution is holy, and and so he he's saying this is a noble train of artillery I'm going to deliver to you. Yeah, I wanted to know where that came from. This noble train. That's th- th- those are his very own words. Yeah. Yeah, it's, it's from his letter, and, you know, and Knox was sort of a, he would exaggerate. He was telling, he told Washington, oh, it won't take any time at all, and now he realizes it's going to take a lot of time. And Washington hadn't heard from him for a while, so when he finally writes this letter from Fort George and says, yeah, I'm on the way, I, I will get there, and I will uh, deliver you your noble train of artillery. So, again, you know, the, this... Knox believed this the revolution was ordained by God and that he was you know, he, he was a zealot. He was his fortunes were tied to it because, you know, if if the revolution failed, he would be hanged, George Washington would be hanged. I mean, these guys had everything on the line. William Hazelgrove, author of Henry Knox's Noble Train, the story of a Boston bookseller's heroic expedition that saved the American Revolution. You can hear the entire conversation by coming to our website, byuradio.org, search for Constant Wonder, and then Hazel Grove. I'm Marcus Smith. Our show is a production of BYU Radio. Music